morning, church. Um, today's reading is taken from 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8 to 15, chapter 9, verse 6 to 12. I'm not commending you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, unrich. And here is my judgment about what is best for you in this matter. Last year, you were the first not only to give, but also to have the desire to do so. Now finish the work so that your eager willingness to do it may be matched by your completion of it, according to your means. For if the willingness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Our desire is not that others might be relieved while you are hard-pressed, but that there might be equality. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn, their plenty will supply what you need. The goal, the goal is equality, as it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also rape sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also rape generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things at all times, having all that you need, you will around in every good work. As it is written, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriching every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. This service that you perform is not only supplying the needs of the lost people, but it's also overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God. This is the word of God. Let's be to God. Thank you. Well. Thank you for reading for us. Good morning, uh, Sha Tin. My name is Darren. It's always lovely to come uh, and visit you and your warm welcome and your generosity and your hospitality. Um, I joke this morning, we all know that he, Pastor He Yu's on a jolly uh, in America, and he's asked me to come and speak on the difficult subject of giving. And my theory is that he only gets me to come and speak on difficult topics uh, that he doesn't want to speak on. Um, he's left me a memo, um, dear Darren, please ask the church to give me lots of money. Um, we're going to try to examine this subject this morning um, through some more sensible eyes. I know that giving isn't always popular, but there is a tremendous truth for us to learn in this passage from Corinthians. So would you please join me in prayer and as you keep that passage open. Father, we thank you so much for your generosity given to us in Christ. We pray, Father, through, by your word and through your spirit, you would build your church and you would help us all at Shatin to grow in knowledge and love of you. In Jesus' name, amen. 
I wonder if anyone here has heard of the phrase dry January, or is anyone doing dry January, or perhaps some of you might even just be on a January diet after Christmas. Uh, it's very hard in Hong Kong because you only have a few weeks uh, to lose the Christmas weight uh, before Chinese New Year happens and you start eating and feasting all over again. Uh, but I was wondering, um, why is it that the world in December we, we feast and feast and feast. We eat and drink and party and give gifts the whole month, right the way through to midnight on the 31st. And then in January, everything goes back in the box. Everything feels a bit flat, well, except our tummies. And we decide, well, we've got to get healthy. We sign up for a gym. We're not going to drink alcohol or, or overeat. Um, and I was reading some Christian history this week, and it was really from the late third century, the early church. They, what they did in the whole season of Advent like Lent, they fasted. They abstained from food and rich food and, and from alcohol. And it was only from Christmas Eve at midnight when they celebrated the birth of Jesus Christ that the feasting and the celebration and the parties commenced. And they ran right the way through to the 8th of January. And I thought this is interesting because the world feasts and then it fasts. But Christians, traditionally, we have fasted, we have sacrificed, we have given up because we are looking forward to a better and truer feast, the, the hope that we have in Christ. And the other interesting thing I was thinking about Christmas, sorry to keep talking about this again, you think you've just escaped from it, but Christmas is the only holiday where we give gifts to absolutely everyone. You know, you have weddings and anniversaries and uh, um, birthday parties, but only one or two people get gifts at those events. But at Christmas, everyone gives gifts to absolutely everyone, everything else. And that's why I'm starting with Christmas this morning, because I believe that Christmas brings us into the theological heart of generosity, because Jesus Christ was the only human being who was not born. He was given and it informs our giving. And this uh, longer reading that we have on this subject, uh, this uh, Second Corinthian passage, um, if you know something about the Bible, you'll know that this is probably the longest, most involved practical statement um, on our giving and generosity. And so we're hopefully going to look at it in um, three points today. Uh, the problem with giving, the problem with greed, and the answer to the problems. Um, the situation that this Corinthian church was in, well, they were a well-off church. They were Gentiles. That meant they were non-Christians. And Paul has written to them, this church that he started, and he's asking them to be generous for, to help with a famine and to provide some relief uh, to the Jewish church in Judea, uh, where, of course, they were ethnically Jews. And the first problem we see, and the first thing we see, the first thing I think that jumps out of this reading is we see the main flow of Paul's argument. For Paul's argument is all to do with motivation. Three times he says it, in fact, I am not commanding you. That's how he starts this off. I want to test the sincerity of your love. He continues in verse 11, so that you may finish your work with eager willingness. And then further on in chapter 9, verse 7, each of you should give what you've decided, and not under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. You've heard that verse before. We've somewhat trivialized it. It usually ends up on fridge magnets, but I, I think the theology is so much richer. Because what Paul is saying to this church, well, it's to do with your heart. It's to do with motivation. You should have so much joy and generosity from being a Christian that you're giving is a response to this. 
It is certainly no rule. There is no compulsion. He says it three times, and that tells us that Paul is serious in what he's talking about. But it is interesting in in sometimes what we call theological ethics. um, This is a very interesting set of statements that Paul gives us because it doesn't happen with almost any other sin. Um, He says, I don't want you, I don't want to command you to be faithful. I just want you to be faithful only if you want to. Now think about this. What is he doing here? Think about the other sins that Jesus and Paul discuss in the pastoral letters. Uh, The Bible says that adultery is a sin. It says that theft is a sin. It also says that greed is a sin, but it frames it as a very different category. It frames greed as a much slipperier sin. It's difficult to define because it, it shows us here that there are no external behavioral reference for greed. You can't set a dollar amount on it. You can't say, well, give that number and then you'll be defined as generous, uh, or give this number and, and you won't be generous. No, Paul is saying it's a matter of the heart. It's to do with your motivation. Whereas the other sins they discuss, adultery, theft, murder, I mean, you, you, it's pretty black or white whether you've shot the guy or not. But with adultery, he says, it's not like that. And, and of course, other sins, there are, there are nuances, but it tells us this is not easy because it tells us, in, and it's, it, this is hard teaching, because in God's eyes, it is a matter of the heart. And I know some of you here will be sitting, uh, and you, you know your Bibles, and you know your Old Testament, and you'll say, well, what about the tithe? And I'll say, yes, the tithe is good. Uh, most of us are not um, fourth century uh, Hebrew Jews, um, so we're not under the law. But in the Old Testament, if you were a Hebrew, in the law, you had to give uh, a minimum 10% of your income uh, to the synagogue or the temple or to charity. Uh, people often reference and think of the tithe simply as 10%. It was much, very likely it was much more than that, closer to 20 by the time you factored in temple taxes and festivals and your animals. But knowing what we know about the tithe for the Jewish people in the law, And knowing that Paul was the Hebrew of Hebrews, it's interesting, isn't it, that he doesn't mention it once here. He's silent on this Old Testament theology of the tithe. Um, And even more interestingly, I think, when Jesus mentions the tithe, we know because he spoke about it in Luke chapter 11, he speaks about it in a very, he speaks about it positively. But then he uses it to shame the Pharisees. He says, Woe to you, because you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all other kinds of herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You, you should have practiced the latter. What on earth is going on here? He says, You guys tithe? That's good. You're very strict with your tithing. Wonderful. You're so strict, you even tithe your vegetables in your herb garden. But you guys have missed the point. I'm using the tithe to condemn you because you've neglected justice and you have neglected the love of God. And, he, and you see what he's saying here? Paul is saying what Jesus told the Pharisees that day. You're legalistically complying with a number. You're, you're complying with a percentage, not a motivation. And so really, the heart, the reason that you give, if, if you're giving to get respect, if you're giving to please God so God will see your giving and, and bless you, um, if you're giving uh, so people think you're generous, you're not really giving. You're, you're investing. You're investing in yourself. It's like making a, a, a deal. You, you, you feel good. People think you're generous. You think God will reward you in the future, or you, you get your name on a university building uh, in Hong Kong or something like that. Paul says, don't miss the heart motive. 
because that's what God is looking at. And so if your heart is generous, if your money is not uh, framed by this feeling of anxiety, if you're giving uh, not begrudgingly, if you're filled with joy and grace, the amount takes care of itself. You'll be pushing to give more and more and more and more. And that's why I think the New Testament is so careful. It's so nuanced. It's so well-written. It is so timeless in its wisdom. As Paul says, each should give according to their means. And yeah, I think tithes are a great guideline, uh, but that rule does not apply to the chat in church in 2024. Each of us must decide in our own hearts. He gives a, a good example and test case of this. We didn't have time uh, to read it, but it's the first four verses of chapter 8. And he references the, the, the Macedonian church. And they were also Gentiles, but they came from a much lower economic status. They were very poor, we know, uh, from other texts. And he says to them, well, uh, in the midst of their severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord, and then by the will of God also to us. See what he's saying? He's saying these poor Macedonian Christians, out of their most severe trial and their extreme poverty, their generosity welled up, and they gave to the famine in Judea. They gave as much as they were able. They gave on their own volition. And how did they do it? Well, they gave themselves first to the Lord, and that enabled them to give uh, to the Lord's people. And now I want to be clear when it says they give, um, when it says they give as much as they were able, I don't think that get, means they gave everything. So they were starving, and then Paul was trying to raise up money uh, for them. No, it's saying they gave sacrificially. From the little amount they had, they made it smaller uh, to, serve, to serve the brothers and sisters. Um, they gave to the Lord so they could give to others. I was reading um, uh, Jonathan Edwards. He was a Puritan, and he had a famous sermon called On Christian Giving. And uh, to paraphrase one of his arguments, he, he says, you're only really giving when it becomes a burden. You're only really giving when it becomes a cost to yourself. You're only really giving when it becomes a sacrifice, when you miss out. Jesus told parables about this. He referenced uh, the, the, the widow in the temple uh, as an example of this. When you give, it might mean that you miss the dinner or you miss the upgrade on the phone or you miss the foreign holiday because you want to give to the Lord's work first. And when you give, there will be a cost to it. So give to the Lord. It's a matter of the heart. But this is the problem, isn't it? Our hearts are so often not like this. And that's the real problem with this passage in this text today. But as we move on, we, we don't just see the problem with giving. Paul gives us the problem with greed. And there's serious results if we don't solve this problem, if we don't take this subject seriously and this resolution going forward in 2024. And I'd like to reference the middle part of the page as we turn uh, now to, um, uh, to, to verse 8. And it says this, or chapter 8 um, 14 to 15. At the present time, your plenty will supply what they need, so that in turn their plenty will supply what you need. The goal is equality. As it is written, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered did not have too the one who gathered little did not have too little. All these years I've read Second Corinthians. I never understood this passage, I think, until this week. And I saw and you won't understand it unless you know what Paul is quoting here. So I finally 
bothered to look up what he was quoting. And you know, some of you might know where this verse comes from that he references. It's from Exodus chapter 16. It's when God's people were nomadic and they were in the desert. And God told them, some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much. And the one who gathered little did not have too little. God had set a set of circumstances for his people during the Exodus that no method of agriculture or hunting or foraging that they would ever have enough food. They had to depend on the Lord for everything. And so you might know it's a popular children's story that every morning, apart from the Sabbath, God did a miracle and uh, food was provided uh, on the desert floor, uh, and it was called manna. Now, there's some discussion what this was, uh, but we know what the Bible does tell us, and you could make cakes out of it, uh, so it's some paste or some flour. And the other rule was that you weren't supposed to take too much. Those who took much were to share with those who had too little. And if you did take too much, if you did hoard it for yourself, well, then it would become a curse to you, for overnight it would rot it would stink. It would say maggots would go through it. And that's what Paul is talking about. And I think it is so interesting. He, he likens our money to manna. And it's just absolutely fascinating. For it means the first thing we need to learn about the gifts, that, the, the wealth that we have, is that not only have we earned them through our work or inherited them, they are a gift from God. How did they get there? How did the people get the manna in the desert? It, well, it, it didn't jump into the bowl. The Bible tells us that. They had to go out and farm it. They had to go and uh, gather it and pick it up. There was work involved. And crucially, obviously, some did a better job than others. The younger, the fitter, those who had bigger families, they were able to gather up more. But the, the principle was clear. Those who had much were to share it, and those who had little were to receive extra. They must not hoard it. And Paul's saying... Your money is like that. You've got to work for it, but it's also a gift. And I know this is very confused. This can be a difficult thing to get our head around. In Hong Kong, we do like to work uh, very hard. And often I hear people say, well, yes, but I earned my money. I worked hard for it. And I want to say very carefully, you worked for it in God's grace because you weren't born in a rice field in the 15th century in Sha Tin. I was not born into a peasant family in Ireland in the 12th century or on the Mongolian steppe in the 13th century. Well, you probably, if you had been born in those circumstances, you would have had to have worked every bit as hard and you probably would have a lot less to show for it. I think through this connection from Corinthians to Exodus, Paul shows us that our health, our opportunities, our education, our work and our wealth, they are all gifts from God. And so you need to work and you need to gather but you also need to know this is a grace and it's a mercy to you and to see everything that you have in your life as a gift. The second danger of greed, the second problem, is that I believe it will, it will rot you. And I don't believe this is too much of a, rhetoric, uh, a rhetorical leap. I, I don't think, maybe it wasn't entirely Paul's intentions, but he says if you hoard it up, it will, it will not go well for you. It will be a curse. It will be a disease. It will, it will be a wretch. It will stink. It will ruin you. And I suppose our experience in, this, in a city where there is enough money for everyone, and yet we experience one of the biggest wealth gaps in the world, I can see where, where Paul in Exodus theology really does come true in our experience. So there's a problem. Um, we're not to do too much. We're not to be greedy. We're to see everything as a gift, and we're not to hoard it. 
for it will ruin us. But he doesn't leave us with this sort of, I suppose if we finished there, it would end on quite a depressing tone because if we're honest, most of us don't feel like this. We, we do want, naturally, we, we want to, to get more. But he gives us two answers to this problem. He tells us how you and I today can cultivate a generous heart this year. And if you don't have a generous heart, the first thing he says to do is to look at the harvest. Look at the harvest and see what it can produce. 9 verse 6, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Uh, reaping, uh, I, I invest, I get more back. And this is sort of the verse that's been perverted into the prosperity gospel. I give money, I'm going to get lots more money back. You can turn on Christian television and you'll usually find someone saying something along those lines. But that does not make sense of this metaphor here. It doesn't understand the metaphor. For what do you sow if you're a farmer? You sow seeds. And what does the farmer want back? Does he want seeds back? No. He wants fruit. He wants a bounty. He, he, he wants the wheat. He wants the harvest. Paul says, invest in something that will return fruit. Um, so, so in this way. And so the question naturally is, well, if you're giving your money, well, how does it come back? If Paul says we reap what we, we sow, and I think it's another remarkable Old Testament connection. As it is written, verse 9, they have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. He's quoting Psalm 112, and I thought, well, why on earth is he doing that? Why is he quoting righteousness that will endure forever? Uh, in, in English, I think righteousness, we jump straight to an idea of moral goodness, and it, righteousness in the Old Testament certainly did not mean anything less than that, but it certainly meant a lot more. I, I think a, a better word for this word in Psalm 112 is, is justice, but that also confuses us because we run to think about jurisprudence. The Hebrew word sort of married um, moral goodness, uh, ju justice, and right relationships, relationships with between people, relationships between people and God, and relationships between people and humanity. And when the Bible talks about it enduring forever, scattering his gifts to the poor, it is saying that right relationships start to happen. When you sow in God's purposes, you're able to bring a rightness to the world that wasn't there before. Uh, you're able to assist in poverty relief. You're able to assist in conflicts being healed, you're able to assist in the proclamation of God's Word going forward. And that's where giving sort of becomes more than you, it more than obeying the law, that in our giving, in good and right giving to God's purposes, everything that is sad can start to be made happy. Everything can start to be healed. God and humanity can start to be restored as we start to put back the classes together, the races together, uh, poverty and the environment, and as we look forward to that final day when God will make everything righteous and good, we get to join in looking forward to that future hope that we have. And if you see your giving in that way, well, I believe it starts to make it just a little bit more exciting. Not that we will ever make the world perfect. No, not at all. We're still under the curse of sin but we use what we have to invest in God's purposes, to restore the world and to proclaim the gospel. And one day, when you and I stand in front of the th throne, and if there are people there who have come to faith 
through people's giving to this church, it will be such an eternal credit to you. It will be a credit to you, and it will be something that lasts forever and ever and ever. So firstly, we look at the harvest, but the second answer is we look to the Lord, and we look to see how He was given. And in their prayers and in their hearts, will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. When I said that Jesus Christ was the only person who wasn't born, but He was given, this is the answer. John 3.16, as we heard so clearly earlier, for the Father so loved the world that he, he gave. Isaiah 9, a son is born, and unto us a son is given. Romans 8.32, because Christ, God has given us all things in Jesus Christ, why would he spare in all other things? If you have Jesus Christ, Paul is saying you have every other gift. And this is the secret to contentment. This is the secret to knowing you have it all, knowing that you already do in Jesus Christ. And this is the son who was given to us. You know in the Old Testament how God appeared to people? You know how he appeared to Abraham in a huge burning furnace? You know how he appeared to Moses in a tree that was on fire? You know how he appeared to Job in a tornado? This was God entering into covenants with his people but he wasn't giving himself to his people then. He couldn't access his people then. They, had, they needed the law. But how did Jesus Christ, how was he given to us? At Christmas, he was given to us as a baby, as a vulnerable baby. Uh, I've got a baby in my house at the minute. You know, they're always glad. You can always kiss them. You can always cuddle them. They're always happy. Well, well usually they're always happy. There is nothing more vulnerable than a baby and this is how the God of the Bible says he gives himself to us as he comes as an infant. And he says, I am giving myself to you so you can give yourself to me. Jesus Christ was the flower of the garden. He was the jewel in the crown. He was the greatest treasure that heaven had. And God gave him. This is what the incarnation tells us. This is the personification of generosity. The son gave his life, the wealthiest, richest man that, that ever lived. And this is what changes your heart. This, I can feel it changing my heart as I read this. And so today, we're not commanding you, but we want to ask, would the gospel change you from the inside? For our key verse this morning, oh, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. That you might become rich. So if you're here today and you think, well, I don't love and I don't have enough joy to be generous, here's what you need to go away and think about. To write these motives on your heart. To think about the God who was very, very rich, and he became poor and mortal and vulnerable, and he walked the earth, and he was stripped of every earthly possession, and he lived a homeless life, and he made it all, and he did it, and he suffered and bled in the garden. And when he thought about passing over the mission God had given them, he said, I will do it, not because they are lovely, but to make them lovely. If you're here today and you think, I don't have the right motives to give, would you know the gospel of grace? Would you know that God is for you? Would you know that he is the treasure he has given himself for you. When you bring the gospel into every part of your life, as Paul does here, he applies the gospel in very economic terms. It changes your heart. 
and it helps Christians and it helps churches to live uh, with radical generosity because we can sacrifice and fast now because we're all looking forward to a future feast at the table of the Lord in heaven. Amen. Let me pray. Father, I pray that the gospel would not just be head knowledge to us, but it would be a radical heart knowledge that as we apply it to every area of our lives, our work, our relationships, even our giving, we would be moved to joy. Thank you for your inexpressible love shown in Jesus Christ. Thank you that you did not hold anything back from us as you gave yourself to bring us to you. What a wonderful hope we have. I pray that you would write it in our hearts and write it in the heart of Shatin Church in 2024. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.